Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. <laughs> We're going to talk today. This is going to be perhaps one of the most unusual uh, Thanksgiving sermons you might ever have heard. Uh, we're going to talk about the Great Tribulation. Yeah. End times. Yay, come on. <laughs> but actually, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you a little story, actually. So, uh, Richard, I'm going to kind of pull an audible here and mess things around on the slides. But uh, I'm going to tell you a story of deliverance, about how Jesus actually really delivered his people from all evil. Because that's, that, that's in the house today. That really is. And, uh, and what I'm going to share with you is a story. Now, I'm going to submit something to you. It might be a little bit different than something you've ever heard. So there's two parts to this. The first part is I'm going to share something with you. You can think it through. You can mull it over. And then I'm going to share some things with you that I think are rock solid and absolutely true. And we're going to go from there. How's that? All right, okay, we're going to go on a real quick little journey. We're going to pick up from where Pastor Carl left off last week. We're moving through Mark. We're now in Mark chapter 13. And if you remember at the end of Mark chapter 12, Pastor Carl did this as the offering teaching last week. It's the story of the widow and the mite. And uh, so the disciples are all sitting in the temple complex. Because the, the temple, it's, it's a big complex. It's not just one building, right? So they're, they're watching people give. And they watch the, the, the lady bring her last dollar and drop it in the box. And so they're in there, and they're looking, and then Mark chapter 13, it starts with this. The disciples are looking at everything, and they're, they're super impressed. They're like, wow, Jesus, look at the buildings, look at the stone, look at the temple. And they're, they're just absolutely in awe of what they're seeing. I mean, this is a magnificent temple. It's, it's a beautiful city, and Jerusalem is really, and the temple are so integral to the whole of the Jewish faith. So, I mean, they're super impressed. And then Jesus says something to them afterwards that, that would have been absolutely devastating. They're super impressed. They're looking at it all. And Jesus says, well, guess what, guys? In Mark chapter 13, uh, verse 2, he says, do you see all these great buildings? All the stuff that you're looking at right now? Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. The whole thing's going to get raised to the ground. And I, I can't even overstate for you how, how devastating of a blow that would have been to a Jewish person. Like, their whole faith was wrapped up in the temple, and it was wrapped up in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city. It was like the crown jewel in the promised land. It was that place from which the Messiah was going to come and rule over the nations. And the temple, I mean, that's the place where God lives, in the Holy of Holies. So, I mean, for Jesus to say to them, this city and this temple are going to be completely destroyed to the extent that not one stone that's touching another is going to be left in place, that's absolutely devastating. That is literally the end of the Jewish world. That's the end of their worship system. That's the end of their national aspirations. That's the end of all of it. And so, as you can imagine, the disciples are, are just, they're, they're gobsmacked, if I can say that. They're just like, Wow. So they leave the temple, they go climb the Mount of Olives, and they're sitting there, and they're looking out over all these buildings, and James and Peter and John, and I think Andrew got in on it this time, and he, they say to Jesus, well, when is this going to happen? Like, come on, you, you just announced the destruction of our whole world. What, tell us, what are going to be the signs that this is going to happen? 
And then Jesus goes on to start off what many people call the Olivet Discourse. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, uh, and then of course in Mark chapter 13, where he starts to list this series of awful, horrible, really bad things. That's a Robert Munch thing. Uh, awful things that are going to happen. And the... Uh, I mean, you can tell they're just kind of like, whoa, this, this, is, this is devastating. Now, the thing about this list that Jesus starts to list out, like wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, famine, pestilence, uh, betrayal, death, all this kind of stuff, uh, awful stuff. Now, what, what tends to happen sometimes is we've kind of taken that list of things, and that list of things can form the basis of a lot of people's eschatology, what they believe is going to happen at the end times. So what I'm going to submit to you is an alternative reading of Mark chapter 13 for you today. It's a little bit different than what uh, perhaps some of the more newer theories, really, that have popped up in the last 100, 150 years. You know the, the idea that there's going to be, uh, Jesus is going to come, there's going to be uh, three and a half or seven years of tribulation, so everything's going to get awful, terrible, and really bad on planet Earth, then he's going to come again after he's rescued people out of here? That's a really new idea in Christianity. Honestly, there was a Scottish lady who had a dream in the 1840s, and, you know, that, that kind of started it. There was a guy called Gladstone who wrote a book in 1870 called Jesus is Coming. There's a couple Bibles written in the early 1900s, Schofield and Darby, these guys actually, and dispensationalism, and they introduced these ideas that really had a political motive behind it that started to really push the church into, towards this belief that, man, everything's going to get awful. And they used Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24 as evidence of all the bad stuff that's going to happen at the end of time. So what I'm going to submit to you here is let's, let's read through this list and let's think a little bit differently. Jesus has just told the disciples everything, all the, like the, all the stones, the temple, Jerusalem itself is going to be raised to the ground. And the disciples say, tell us when this is going to happen. Tell us when this is going to happen. And somehow, we've kind of taken the list of things that Jesus used to help people be aware of when the temple was going to be destroyed, and we've applied it to our own times. And there, there's a certain tendency in, in humanity throughout history to anachronistically read into our own times the things that are said in the Bible. See, that, this is why we hammered it so hard in the Jesus trip. Remember the phrase, the Bible wasn't written uh, to you, but it was written for you. So we're going to kind of understand a little bit more about that as we go along. So Jesus answers the question. They say, when's all this stuff going to happen? When's the temple getting destroyed? When is Jerusalem getting raised to the ground? And he says, well, here's some of the signs. Mark chapter 13, 5 to 7. False Christs, false prophets are going to arise and they're going to mislead many. There's going to be tons of deception. And if you know, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Jesus ascended around AD 30. So in that 40 years, which just happens to be a generation, Later on in the book of Matthew, he says, none of these things will, will, you know, this generation will not pass away till all of these things happen. Well, there's 40 years, and that's a generation. Just a thought, right? So, he says, false Christs and false prophets are going to arise. So, so the anachronistic reading is to look out over the internet and to see all the, the bad teaching that's out there and kind of read it into our times. But we've got somebody from church history. His name's uh, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea. He was a bishop and a church historian from 260 to 340 AD. And he writes, after the Lord was taken up to heaven, the demons put forth a number of men who claimed to be gods. Now, whether you believe that or not, we've got a credible source from church history who's characterizing the time immediately after Jesus' resurrection as a time of deception. It's like God sent the living word into the earth, and then right after he ascended, the devil sent angels of light. 
into the world and started all this kind of false teaching and heresy. And you actually look back through church history and that really happened. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, 7 to 8, this would be a time of wars and rumors of wars. Nations and kingdoms would rise up against each other. And up until Jesus' ascension, there was the Roman peace. It was a very peaceful time across the Roman Empire. In those 40 years, we started to see mostly because there's false Christs and false prophets rising up, trying to inspire the Israelites to rebel against the Romans. There's a lot of wars going on. There's a lot of rebellions, a lot of death, a lot of mayhem. Actually, in those 40 years, four Roman emperors died violently. Like, could you imagine four assassinations of the president of the United States in 40 years? That would be a big deal, right? Actually, a civil war broke out in Rome. So, I mean, this is, this is definitely wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said before the stones of the temple were going to be thrown on top of the other and Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, there would be earthquakes and famines in various places. The Bible tells us about a great famine in Acts chapter 12. Uh, we see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16. He's going around collecting stuff, collecting money, trying to raise funds for the people who are suffering, the church that's suffering because of this famine. So, I mean, there's a famine. If you look at the writers of the times, there's earthquakes everywhere. Colossae, Smyrna, uh, the Smyrna, all these other places. Judea, Crete, Laodicea, Samos. There's, all, there's, there's literally stuff going on everywhere. Pompeii. We know there's, a, there's an earthquake in 63 AD in Pompeii, and you'll probably know Pompeii is the city that got destroyed when the, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Well, the, a lot of people think that that earthquake in 63 AD was the precursor to that, the, the eruption of that mountain. So, I mean, there, there's stuff going on. There's earthquakes. I mean, it fits the times. He says there's going to be a period of persecution, of hatred, of criminal charges, of death and betrayal. You know, sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, they're all going to rebel against each other. They're all going to betray each other. People are going to deliver you up for, for death. And Jesus says, don't worry about it when you get handed in front of the rulers because the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. So we're, we're expecting a time of great persecution. And you know what? Some, you know, there is persecution in the world. But this time was marked by incredible persecution. You can read about one of those episodes in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. There's a guy called Saul, later to be named Paul, who actually instigated a massive, or he was part of a massive persecution. Another one in Acts chapter 12, and then most famously, probably, in, in uh, AD 64, I believe it was, uh, Nero, Emperor Nero, the crazy beast Emperor Nero, he, uh, he, he burned half of the, or a third of the city of Rome to the ground, and then he blamed the Christians and started a massive persecution. Again, I mean, this is where we, like, crazy stuff happens. Like, they're, they're burning Christians as candle parties. Like, like, weird stuff. Like, awful, terrible stuff. So, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a 40 years marked by intense persecution. Jesus said there's a time of tribulation and suffering that's coming so great that's actually worse than anything that's ever happened, and it's not going to happen again. And just like I said, I can't overstate enough how, how devastating it would have been for those disciples to have heard that Rome or that Jerusalem and the temple were going to be destroyed. It's, I cannot begin to overstate it. I'm not even going to get into the details because there's kids in the room about some of the atrocities and the depravity of the stuff that happened in Jerusalem when the Romans actually destroyed the city. In a space of four months, one million Jewish people were killed. In a city of 200,000, the, the sneaky Romans let the Jews in to celebrate Passover, and then they locked the gates and wouldn't let anybody out. There's stories where you could be in Jerusalem, and you'd look out, and you couldn't find a tree that was still standing, because they'd all been cut down to, to crucify people. That, that's the death. I mean, the stories. Uh, read Deuteronomy 28. Read some of the awful things that, that there's warnings about that might happen. That stuff happened with credible witnesses. It, it was just awful. 
I mean, it's hard to say how, how bad of an experience this was. Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Whether we believe, you know, there's a future army coming from Gog or Magog, Jerusalem actually was trampled by the Gentiles in AD 70. So Jesus says all the horrible stuff is going to happen. And, and he said it in response to the question, tell us when the temple is going to be destroyed. And he tells it to them. And if you keep reading in Mark chapter 13, he says something really odd. He says, now after this tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. So you could be tempted to say, well, you know what, AD 70, we, the sun's still in the sky. The moon hasn't happened, so surely this tribulation is still going to happen in the future right? Because we, and even from history, we know that nothing like that happened. I mean, you can go outside and see the sun right now. So, uh, but if you let the Bible interpret the Bible, sometimes it's a good thing to do. Sometimes the Bible will give you clues. So here's the thing, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying against Babylon. And he's going to say, hey, the Babylonian powers are going to be brought down. The government of Babylon's going down. And this is how he describes it. The stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. Similarly, Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 32, he's prophesying to the Pharaoh. He's prophesying to Egypt. And he's saying about the Egyptian empire, when God's going to bring that down, not in the time of Moses, in the time of Ezekiel, he says, when I put out your light, I'm going to cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I'm going to cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I'll make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord your God. Now, we know from history that Babylon and Egypt fell. Babylon was replaced by the Assyrians. The Egyptian empire kind of just fizzled out. But we also know that the sun didn't lose its light. The moon didn't fall. The stars didn't fall. So the Bible, when you let the Bible speak for itself, it actually uses sun and moon and stars to describe powers, to describe governing ruling entities. So what you've got saying here is after this tribulation, all of the rulers that are kind of associated with this temple and with Jerusalem, they're going to be rendered unable to govern anymore. The powers attached to this system are going to be brought down. Those powers are not going to be able to exist anymore. And you know what? We still use that language today, right? We got the star-spangled banner to the south. We got stars, 50 stars in the flag that represent 50 different states. We got the Lone Star State. I mean, we still talk that way today. So it's not that odd. But then it says, after this tribulation, it says there's going to be this time where you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and he's going to send his angels out. So here's that, that's a little bit tricky, isn't it? Because we're like, well, what Jesus was talking about couldn't apply to the destruction of Jerusalem because the Son of Man hasn't come yet. We haven't seen him coming on the clouds. So this, this has to be in the future. But something else I'm going to submit to you just to consider. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He prophesies and he says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Look at this. This is pretty cool. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him before him. The Son of Man coming in the clouds is a reference to Jesus ascending and coming to the Father. It's like that psalm that says, swing wide you ancient doors and open you heavenly gates and all that stuff that the King of Glory may come in. 
But one of the problems when we read the Bible sometimes is it's kind of a, a human thing, is we, we, we honor the book and we believe that it speaks to our lives. And, and that, that's, that's, we have to read it that way. But sometimes we insert ourselves in the story when, when the best reading is actually to let it talk about Jesus and let it point to him and who he is. So this is a really good example. I say, well, I didn't see the Son of Man coming on the clouds because I think it's talking about me seeing him come. But what if it's written from the perspective like the prophecy in Daniel says? What if these guys are saying it's like the Son of Man ascending, ascending to sit on the right hand to receive the promise of the Father? And then it says he sends out his angels, his messengers, his, his angelos, the people out into the world who are going to gather, who are going to preach the gospel. And that's what he did. Jesus, the, the chief apostle, he sent out his apostles and prophets and all those attached to them, and they went out with the gospel. And he's been sitting there while his messengers have been out gathering people in. And that's what's been happening. Then, in Mark chapter 13, 32 and 37, as he said all this stuff, as he's described, these are the signs of what's going to happen when the temple is going to get destroyed and when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Then he changes his tune a little bit, but he says, of, talking about his second coming, he says, but of that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, take heed, watch and pray, for you don't know when the time is. Now, wouldn't it be weird if he, he was asked the question, when, when are all the signs of this stuff going to happen? And he gives them detailed signs, but then he says, yeah, you know what, forget about what I just said, because nobody really knows anyways. That'd be weird, right? I mean, he's talking about when is the temple going to be destroyed, not when is the earth going to be destroyed. So he's talking about a great tribulation. He's talking about a terrible time of trouble. And you know what? That terrible time of trouble happened. It happened in AD 70. It happened for the Jewish people. That, that's what I believe. And I would present that to you. And if you look online on the notes, there's a lot of different things that you can, you can look at. I've got some resources in there, some books, some ways that you can look at it. And I understand that might be very, very different to some things that you've heard in the past. That might be a very different reading. But uh, I believe that it actually historically and scripturally fits. Yes. So if, 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 hear me out now. If that's true, if what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, in Mark chapter 13, in Luke chapter 21, referred to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, if the Bible, we say, is that particular portion wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, then there's still good things that we can get out of that, right? Like, there's still, like, we can read that and say, wow, that, that might not be for my time. That might have been for their time, but there's some stuff that I can get out of that. And this is what I want to share with you right now. The first thing that I get out of this when I look at it is I see that Jesus came into the world not to destroy it and not to condemn it, but to save it. Right. See, sin has its own consequences. It really does. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God didn't say to them, you know, when you eat this fruit or if you eat this fruit, I'm going to kill you. He said, when you eat the fruit, it will kill you. So in describing Jerusalem and talking about it, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus, he's on his way into the city. This is before he answers these questions for his disciples. And it says, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from you. Here's the thing. Instead of embracing the Prince of Peace... The Jewish people, they continued to fight and agitate the Romans. They clung to their nationalistic and, and super religious, militaristic at times religion. And didn't Jesus say to Peter, if you live by the sword, what's going to happen? You're going to die by the sword. 
So, I mean, this, this period of destruction that the Jewish people went through, it, it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the Father saying, man, you rejected my son. Now I'm going to kill you. That, that's not what happened. And if you believe that this stuff is in the future, I hope you know that God is not in heaven storing up wrath, just waiting to pour out vengeance and destruction on the unlucky people who happen to be alive for three and a half years before he comes. That's not his nature. That's not who God is. See, even in this message, here's the amazing thing. Here's, here's Jesus. He's, he's giving the prophecy to these people. He's answering the question to the disciples. And this is how he delivered his people. Do you know that history tells us, like, literally, this is one of the worst atrocities in the history of humanity, but not one single Christian died in it? Isn't that crazy? See, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation or the desolating sacrilege in the place where it ought not to be, you know what you got to do? Let those in Judea run. That's in the Bible. So let who? Let those who are in Judea. So whatever that desecrating sacrilegious thing is, it's something that the people of Judea were going to see, and the people of Judea were given very strict instructions. When you see that, run. Like, literally, if you're, you can read it in the scriptures. Literally, he says, if you're on the house, don't go into the house to get your coat. If you're in a field, don't go back to get your buddy. Take off. Go. One's going to go. One's going to be left. Somehow, we've read that to mean the rapture. But historically speaking, they literally listened to what Jesus said. I mean, these guys, they saw the miracles of Jesus. They saw the healing. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They took him seriously. Here is the prophet of God, the capital P prophet, the living word of God saying, guess what, guys? Something awful is about to happen, but I can help you. I can save you. I can deliver you. And you know what? They listened. History tells us not one single Christian died. Of that one million Christ, or Jews, Jewish people that died, not one was a believer. 100,000 people that got taken into slavery after. Not one of them was a believer. They all literally left, and historically we know they left, and they went to a place called Pella. They went into the mountains. They literally ran to the mountains, like Jesus said. If they would have gone to the, to the west, they would have been caught by the Roman army that was invading. But they literally listened to him, went to the hills, and Jesus delivered his people out of all their troubles. He really literally did. See, here's the problem with an idea about wrath that says God is storing up his anger, his wrath, and his vengeance to be poured out on a portion of the population in the future. That's not actually kind of how the wrath of God works. See, if you look in the Bible and you let God, again, let the Bible define the words that we use from the Bible, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36, he said that if you believe in the Son, you've passed from death to life, you've got life, but if you don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on you. The wrath abides. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against not people, but against the wickedness and the unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and wickedness. So the wrath of God is something that's poured out against unrighteousness and wickedness, not even against people. And then if you go even farther and you let Paul describe what that wrath looks like in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28, there's three different times where he describes what the wrath looks like. And he says, man, this wrath is revealed and it looks like God giving them over to their vile passions, God giving them up to sinful desires, God giving them over to a debased mind. So the wrath of God, it actually looks something totally different than what, what I, perhaps many of us have been taught to believe that it looks like. It does not look like an angry, vengeful God in heaven who's just waiting to pour out bowls of anger and destruction on people. The wrath of God, if you let the Bible define it, is actually God just with intense passion, because that's what the word means. It's orgy. It means passion. It means passionate anger. It's God just boiling up like, man, I can't believe that they still don't want me. 
He's like, every time I try to get involved, every time I try to help them, it's like they just become more enraged at me. And it's like God says, man, I just, I got to step back. If I don't step back, not only are they going to keep on hurting themselves, but they're going to start hating me more and more as well. So it's like God says, okay, I got to let you go. I got to let you experience the consequences of what you want. That is a biblical definition of wrath. There's another definition that we have a hard time with, and that's judgment. Because the Bible said it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, he says that if you believe in the Son and the one whom he sent, you've passed from death to life already, and you will not come into judgment. You will not come into judgment. I believe in Jesus. I don't know about you. That means if I, if I accept and I trust the words of Jesus, I will not come into judgment. So whatever I'm believing about the future, I know that my future does not involve that. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Guess what? I died with Christ. I did. I already died. I was crucified with Christ. And now I live by his life inside of me. I died. And that word judgment, it means crisis. It literally means decision, and it's a noun. That means that the judgment of God, whatever your picture of judgment is, it's not God actively hurting you. It's not that God has decided, you know what, in the future, I'm going to hurt the people of the earth. No, it's a decision. And you know what? That decision was rendered over me already. And you can read about it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, holy, without blame, and above reproach. That's the decision that was made about me already. Can you believe that? I might face a judgment one day. And you know, the Bible says we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the, the, the Bema seat. And you know what? There's going to be a, a verdict rendered over my life. I already know what the verdict is. The audacious, the ridiculous thing about it, he's actually going to give me more stuff based on what he's done in and through my life. I'm not afraid of that day. I welcome it. And I welcome the judgments of God. And I ask for them daily because, oh my goodness, if we understood the judgment of God, we would welcome it. We'd ask for it. We'd ask for the judgment of God to be poured out on the earth, righteous, forgiven, reconciled to the Father. We'd have a totally different understanding and we wouldn't be expecting that in the future something awful is going to happen because God has to judge us. No, Jesus said in John chapter 12, he said, you know what, speaking about the kind of death he was going to die, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to bring all men to myself. He said, in that moment, now is the judgment of the world. Now is this prince cast out. And that's the second point I want to point out to you. That's the second thing here. The sin of the world has already been judged. So whatever you believe about Mark chapter 13, about wars and rumors of wars and tribulations, if you let Jesus define himself, if you let him speak for himself, you have to agree that the sin of the world was judged at the cross. That means that whatever the future holds, it does not involve three and a half years or seven years of God pouring out his judgment. You know, things might get ugly. Things might get hairy for a time, but that's, uh, that, that's basically on us. And if I let Mark 13 teach me anything and, and I listen to the, to the word that was shared today, I've got a God who's actually trying to save me from peril. Not only is he trying to save me from spiritual damage, but he's actually trying to help me out of the messes that I create for myself. Isn't that good? And you know what? If you listen, and you listen prophetically, God is not angry. He's not hanging the sword over the earth like Damocles' sword or whatever it is. That's not happening on planet earth right now. If you're listening to heaven right now, he's trying to help. The prophet of God, the capital B prophet, is still speaking into families. He's speaking into individual lives. He's speaking into nations, and he's speaking into the whole world right now, trying to help, trying to save us, trying to deliver us from the problems that we've gotten ourselves into. And then ironically turn around and say, it's actually your fault, God. Isn't that, he's so good. He's so good.
If you need tribulation, Jesus gives you an amazing promise. In John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. If you need it and you really want it, he promises it to you. It's just a fact of life. Some bad stuff happens in the earth. It really does. We live in a fallen world, but Jesus says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. When I go through tribulation, when I go through bad stuff, if I look out over planet earth right now and I look at the state of affairs in the world, I don't have to be a prophet to say, you know what, there's some things that are going to get worse. That's not because I've matched it and paired it to Mark chapter 13. It's because I can do cause and effect. You know, I can look at it and say, wow, if we keep going this way, this is going to happen. But Jesus wants to involve in the get involved in the realm of the nations, and he wants to speak and raise people up who can deliver people from those types of problems. So when I go through tribulation, I don't look at it and say, wow, I'm suffering the wrath of God. I look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and I say, I wasn't appointed to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's good news. It's really good news. So if Mark 13, one, one more thing that I want to say. You, we can lift our expectations from doom and gloom to glory and victory. From a biblical perspective, we're in the last days. The apostles believed they were in the last days, and they were. Some things are bad. Some things are going to get bad. Some things have always been bad. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, he said, perilous times are going to happen in the last days. And I want to submit to you, he wasn't predicting a three and a half year period where human nature was going to get even more wicked or even more, uh, you know, just clouded with a sense of alienation from God. He was trying to say, hey guys, we're in the end times, but don't be so naive so as to believe that because we're in the end times, everything's great. There's a lot more to come. We're still working towards the restoration of all things. There are perilous times. Don't be naive. Understand it. Don't be freaked out when there's people out there who are acting like they don't know God. You know, those who have the love of themselves more than the love of God and all that list of stuff that he, that's sinners being sinners. That's the sinful nature expressing itself. Like it, it doesn't get more intensified at any particular moment. Paul's just saying, come on guys, like we're in the last days, but there's still some work to do. We're still working towards the restoration of all things. And the beautiful thing is that it's not the evil troubles that are going on in the world that sets the end time agenda of God. It's actually the church. Yes. It actually says in 2 Peter 3.12 that we can look forward to and hasten, speed up the coming of the Lord. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. We can speed it up. That's nuts. So here's some positive end time stuff that I want to leave you with. Because let's be serious. Jesus promised it. Tribulation will come. Paul said, you know, if you'd live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. But here's some amazing end time stuff. Isaiah 2, 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Yeah. So I don't know what your end time expectations are. I don't know if I've been able to, to shift that at all for you or given you some things to think about. But according to the Bible, there's a moment in time where the church is going to be exalted, where our influence is going to exceed the influence of, of anything else on planet Earth. And it says that the nations are going to flow to the church. The way I read that is the people of the world are going to come to the church and say, teach us what it means to be a human. Teach us what it means to be a community. How can you do this in such troubled times? How do you work as a multi-generational, multi-ethnic community? How do you love each other? How do you function in community? What is different about you? Teach me how to be a human. And we're going to be able to say, look at the last Adam. There's the original prototype for humanity. There's Jesus. And he's expressing itself in us. That's what the end times are about for the church. What about this? Acts chapter 2, Peter, when he's trying to explain Pentecost, he says, he, he's explaining Pentecost in these terms. It's the last days, guys, and God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Yeah. 
That's, that's his explication of Pentecost. He's not saying there's going to come a time. He's saying we are in the last days and this is what's happening. God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. On my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And that's where this all really comes together. This is, this is why last week and the, and the thing about faith is so important to get. This is why understanding our role and how understanding what we think is going to happen in the future affects our today. Because God in the last days, which we're in, he would pour out his spirit and have a group of people walking around prophesying the restoration of all things. He would have a people walking around and framing the world by the word of God, putting it back together by our words. See, at the beginning of the, thing, of the creation, God said, let there be light, and he created. And at the end, before he comes again, there's going to be a people who are going to say, let it be. He's going to rearrange the order of the, of the whole creation of the cosmos. He's going to put things right the same way he started it with let there be. But this time it's going to be let there be through a prophetic people who are able to see and understand he has good things in store for us. The restoration of all things is what's going to happen. That's what's keeping him in heaven. He's waiting till all things be restored. And you can read about that in Acts chapter three. That's in the Bible. So there's a good future planned for us. So I would encourage you, when you read the Bible, when you read Mark chapter 13, when you read Matthew 24, when you think about end time stuff, when you listen to whatever's out there on the internet, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you got to let Jesus Christ frame your vision and your future. You got to let the finished work of the cross shape what you expect to happen. And you got to know that God is good. And instead of taking uh, weird notions of what wrath and judgment and all that stuff looks like, let, let the Bible define it for you. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff out there that we take for granted and we claim to be biblical, but it's actually not. It does not come from the Bible. And when you follow through the genealogy or the family tree of some of these ideas, they're actually really recent. But sometimes there's this tendency to say, no, that's biblical. And I'm just saying, you know what? Let what I said to you today, let it be a presentation, let it be a submission. I pray that you go and have a look at these things because there's a very real Savior. And we have a very real historical record out here about how Jesus saved and delivered his people. He brought them out of all peril. Yeah. Not one Christian died. Right. Isn't that amazing? amazing? That means I have a Jesus who wants to speak into my world and he foresees calamity. He foresees difficulty. He foresees tribulation. And he can speak into my life and he can help me to navigate it. He can help us as the people of God to come out on the other side of something like a global pandemic in much better shape than when we left it. He would make a marked distinction on the people of God, not to be exclusive, but to show other people his goodness. And this is what he did for the Jewish people back then, and this is what he'll do for us. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. All right, let's stand up together, guys. Let's stand up. He's a good savior. He really is. You know, he's, he's come to save us from our sins, and he's come to save us from ourselves. He's come to save us from all peril and all danger. But he's so, 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 so good. And I just want to give you a chance today. If you're here today and you've never said to Jesus, be my savior. Be the one who saves me from my sin. Be the one who saves me from catastrophe in my world. Be the one who delivers me out of all peril. If you've never said that to him before, I want to give you the chance to do that this morning. Online, too, if you're watching in your living room, you can put your hand up. I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to ask you just to put your hand up, just as a way of expressing a little bit of faith and saying, I believe. Ready? One, two, three. Anybody here have never done that before? You never said, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Thank you. Okay, guys, we're all going to pray together, all right? Yeah. We're going to say, Jesus, Jesus, thank you for saving me. 
thank you for delivering me. Thank you for a future. Thank you for a hope. I receive you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, if you prayed that prayer and you're online too, please feel free on impactlondon.ca, fill out the connect card, let us know what's happened. But uh, you have just become part of the family of God. Isn't that good? Thank you, Jesus. All right, guys, we're going to pray together. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for your protection, your deliverance. Thank you for a good expectation. I know, God, whatever troubles and tribulations happen in this life, you're my God, you're my Savior, you're my help. You're the one who lifts my head. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. You're the one who's going to bring me through every difficulty, and I thank you so much. I pray that every person here, Father, and everyone online just feels, feels the helper. You're here to help us. Thank you, Jesus, for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, active, present, engaged in our lives, being an ever-present help in every situation we find ourselves in. So I thank you for that, Father. I bless everybody here in Jesus' name. Amen.